good. All right, so hello, EJ. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're super excited to be hearing from you. Now, jumping straight into it, would you be able to give us a bit of an overview on your thoughts on cybersecurity and technology currently? Cool. Right. So I think I like to begin with technology having been around for a very long time in lots of different ways, you know, whether it was a, a walking stick or a set of eyeglasses or something like that. So technology is really anything we use to assist us. And then more recently, that became a, a computer of sorts. And then more recently, still, it's now become an adjunct to everyday life. And um, we wouldn't be speaking right now and recording right now without use of electronic style recording. Um, and, and so as anything evolves, the threats and risks around using it go along with it. It's almost like evolution. Um, so, you know, initially when the World Wide Web was first this very experimental thing, there weren't really any bad actors. There, weren't, there wasn't a reason to think security and it really wasn't built necessarily with security in mind. And I'm setting aside, of course, um, the Defence Department's use of, of that sort of technology for now. And that means you're always playing catch up and whether it's in the security sphere or the regulatory sphere or in even how people feel safe and use devices and understanding how it affects our mentality, it's a catch up race. Um, so I, I feel that moving forward, um, I think, I think we'll be a lot more aware of the risks involved, but unfortunately a lot of people don't learn except by bitter experience themselves. Um, and, and, you know, in, in a sort of nation state context that translates to how we interact with each other. Um, the forces that we've always used to manipulate how we think, influence operations, information operations, um, are, are always going to continue spying um, and, and unfortunately acts of hostility. It's just we have a new, um, a new quiver in, in the set of, you know, the bows, the, the, the arrows for our bow. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So do you think that there's been much change in sort of the cyber security um, area in recent years? Because it seems like we're always hearing sort of cyber security being thrown around in the media, but is it something that's getting more prevalent or is it just something that we haven't really paid much attention to in the past? Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of when dot-com, you know, was the share to invest in and every person could be an IT expert and there was very little regulatory oversight or, or any way or even knowing whether you were getting a value for your service or, you know, service for, for the money that you're investing. And I think now that there's also, unfortunately, a lot of people saying, I, you know, I'm doing your cybersecurity, you can count on me. But actually, again, there's a real absence in the regulatory sphere so that people know even what it's meant to be and whether it's covering it. Now, in other um, nation states such as England or the United States, um, they're, they're, uh, they've really put a lot of work into saying, what's the essential things that you might want to know, whether you're in government, whether you're in small business, or whether you're just an individual on the street. Um, and I. I am hesitant to criticise my own government, the Australian government, <laughs> but I feel that um, we've really let members of the public down, uh, especially in a state that doesn't in any way codify our rights, our human rights necessarily, um, other than, you know, obviously international convention of it. But we don't have a Bill of Rights, for example. Um, we don't have a, an inherent right to any of these freedoms. So um, I think 
I think it would be really wise to see us evolve a bit further than where we are now. So that if I say to, you know, um, person on the street, your average person on the um, omnibus equivalent in, in law speak, um, how, how do you feel about cybersecurity? They'll say, oh, oh, I don't know. And then I can say, you know what? There's this amazing website called the acsc.gov.au. Go there. They've got the essential eight. But, um, you know, the essential eight right now I've likened to um, its utility coming if you print it off on a nice soft three-ply and use it in the bathroom. And, I, and you know, in all due respect to the people that wrote it, it's just pitched at a level that it's not quite there for technical people, but it's also not quite there for members of the average community who shouldn't need to know technical skills. So I really think um, let's look at what other countries in our situation are doing and, and get ahead with what, what does cybersecurity mean? It means that I, as someone who isn't, you know, I, as someone who isn't um, a specialist can go onto my computer use it safely and not need to know much. I know that I've, for example, clicked a button and a lot of people are under the um, misapprehension that, for example, they've purchased Norton virus or something. Um, and, and then they're, therefore they've got cybersecurity. That's not, it's a piece of cybersecurity, just, just as is privacy, a piece of cyber law, but it's not the whole piece. Um, so I think, um, the other thing I liken the, the cybersecurity piece to is the days when we had cars before we had regulation on seatbelts or on speed limits. And then, you know, people are dying because the cars get faster and the brakes eventually had to get faster. And then eventually the, you know, the government steps in and says, okay, these helpless little members of my community, they can't help themselves. They're driving too fast. They're killing each other. We're going to make it law. And they don't stop there. They also then put in um, advertising. So now seatbelts will be necessary, click, clack, front and back or whatever it is. And, and then they're going to make driving under the influence also illegal. But they, they accompany it with an entire education, um, essentially a version of influence operations um, and advertising. And, and absence that, I feel we've really let the public down because they're busy doing their lives. They should not have to worry about whether the computer they or their children or their parents are using are inadvertently taping them getting changed in the afternoon. I mean, it's, it's I think, got away from us a bit in our region, um, is specifically Australia. Um, I think other members of the Oceania region are doing a lot better than us. So we don't have to look too far afield to pick up our game, but, but bear in mind for us as Australians, the limitations of an individual citizen and how they find out and how they would redress something that, that wasn't done properly. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. So you mentioned that some of the other Oceania states are doing a little bit better than us in some regard. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what it is that they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, 
it's in the interests of a nation state to sort of build a population that's capable, competent, and sufficiently educated to go about their day without needing to be rescued. And for example, in Australia, the ACSC has had to spare a fair, spend a fair bit of time running around rescuing some businesses who have been um, subject to malicious attacks, whether or not from a state actor, but where it reaches a certain threshold, they step in. And I think that in other, um, other nations in this region, they've taken a view that if they actually give people the tools themselves, whether it's small, medium or large business, they won't then need to come bailing them out as a last resort, as an option of last resort. Um, and, that, and that's actually in a whole infrastructure. So it's not just slapping laws on, you know, so actual black letter law regulation. And it's not just allowing the tech companies to perform regulation by default, for example, Google's terms and conditions. Um, but, it's, but it's a synthesis of all of these things. And it's an understanding that by lifting this game, we will be, all be able to achieve this together. And, and I'm just gonna call out one thing, for example, that Singapore has done, which actually was a health, a health initiative, but it uses technology and it has to come with assured cybersecurity because it's actually a personal device. And um, you know, forgive me if I misquote it slightly, but the devices I understand it's like a pedometer mm -hmm. and it's going to affect how um, how much your health you know credit is for example um, not that it's a, a health credit score but uh, you know the cost might be reduced if you achieve certain number of, of your steps per day and it's it's modified for your age and, and you know health conditions and so forth but in this way um, the government itself is saying well here's an incentive we actually want you to adopt quite a new technology and it's one that's capable of sending and receiving signals so in in arm and arm with us asking you for this for this reason you know if you do well you know here's a little uh, a little um carrot not a stick um and in exchange for that the, the singaporean population have a reasonable expectation that data is not going to be misused you know for example um a politician who takes steps towards his mistress's house instead of going directly from the office home or something so i think it's a beautiful um little bubble of just you know, a, a government that embraces the technology and then looks to its citizens to understand, implement and use for a valid reason. Um, whereas I feel and absolutely understand that the pandemic of 2020, no one, uh, well, actually, I won't say no one saw it coming. Epidemiologists saw this coming for a very long time. You know, the Spanish flu was a long time ago. But, but let's just say it ambushed us. And the Australian government looking at what had happened in Singapore with their health tracing app for COVID data, looking at what other nations had done, um, came up with an odd mishmash that wasn't completely open source, wasn't completely transparent. And a lot of commentators in my field, myself included, didn't really like it. We didn't feel it was doing justice to the Australian public who haven't had the benefit of a great education campaign or advertising or regulation and then they're being asked to trust a government that after robo debt after the medical health app disaster you, you know they it's an eroded position of trust anyway and then unfortunately as anyone in victoria will know um it, it didn't it didn't do what it said it would in the end so maybe all those people who even cyber security Specialists were saying, oh, I'm willing, I, I know this isn't secure, but I'm willing to give that up for the better good for the 
for the common cause, which is a lovely um, position to take. It didn't, it didn't work out for us. So I think, you know, it's this, this notion I feel, you know, collectively stronger, let's empower, let's educate. And, and even if people want to call it manipulative of, a, of any nation state to say, and it's for this reason, that's to me contextual all our nation states have been all modifying and prodding and nudging our behaviors um, for time immemorial. Um, perhaps now it's more transparent because of technology. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great topic. And um, I'm quite interested that you brought up the robo debt and sort of the perhaps um, areas where we haven't been great in Australia and implementing these sort of new technologies. And on that note, do you think that sort of policymakers actually understand sort of like this area of technology regulation sort of, is there a great understanding or is it just sort of, is that why we're missing the mark so often? Look, um, I um, all due credit to people who can sell and market products. Um, I think the government is not a specialist in anything in particular. For example, if it wants to buy the Microsoft um, Outlook suite for whatever government department, it's going to the salesman and the salesman is going to tell them, oh, yeah, it's blah, 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 it's amazing, it does all these things. So, so in, in defence of some of the decisions the government's made, including remote debt, I've no doubt that a very slick salesman or team of salesmen, and no disrespect to the salesman involved, <laughs> Um, have, have had these negotiations and I, my understanding is the government had a belief and a trust that it would work, um, that it would be sensitive to the privacy of the individuals whose data was um, used and, and that the algorithms being used were um, safe and accurate. Um, and, and so when you find that that's fallen apart, it's, it's almost a little bit like the, um, I suppose, the debacle with the contractors being used in Victorian hotels for this um, pandemic. And, 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 and you, you have to unravel a lot of steps along the way because there's more than one reason um, RoboJet fails. And having said that, I think there was an overarching and much deeper problem, which is that a society, to me, um, is best judged through the lens of those who are least able to procure, defend, um, walk, eat, see, hear. So if we're now attacking, um, and I'm using the word attack deliberately, if we're now attacking by abandonment the most vulnerable members of our population through uh, an algorithmic system like robo-debt, um, that's not a society I really want to be part of. Um, our, our, our justice system, justice inverted commas, because <laughs> I'm not so sure it's just, but it, 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 it's the one thing that lawyers um, will often be able to sleep at night about is that better to let nine guilty go free than have one innocent convicted. And with RoboJet, we had the opposite. And then, and then again, they weren't, these weren't criminals in society. These weren't, you know, um, just as I feel the data on false claims of, um, of, of government allowances are, are wildly exaggerated. Uh, same as, for example, uh, false rape claims. Actually, the truth is 
very few self-respecting people would elect to rely on a handout that's below the living wage. Um, so then, then to be accused of having misdirected or misused it and it having been incorrect, people lost their homes over it, people lost marriages over it, people lost their lives over it. And what I um, would love is that people use this as an example of what not to do, not within Australia alone, I mean within the oceanic region, around the world. Look, this is, this is the consequence of not understanding what you've programmed. And, and I get that the salespeople, the marketing people involved in the product and the purchasing side of the government aren't going to be the kind of computer scientists who can pull apart the language. Um, I mean, heck, even the people that create the script and the code will be separate to the team that debug it. I, I get this is, this is very specific. However, if you don't even have a, a script of what questions to ask in the procurement of these programs that are being procured for a certain reason, then you're going to continue to repeat the mistakes of the past. So what I'd love to see coming out of a lessons learned area, which as far as I know, doesn't exist for the area that procured um, RoboDebt would be, aha, this is what we missed. What we missed was a list of uh, a checklist, a, a list of questions to put to the people who wrote this code, for the people who programmed the algorithm, for people who actually can, you know, I want that demonstrated. Get, you know, go, go and get how many demonstrations you need um, to ensure that, that they stay safe. It's very different if we're talking um, misdemeanors to middle upper class people who can afford legal representation, but when you're talking about those people who, for a multitude of reasons, physical, mental, all kinds of capacity reasons, um, are already on this, this pittance handout, and then you turn around and treat them like that, I, I don't think that's reflective of the society that any of us want to be part of. Yeah. No, of course not. I think a lot of people are really shocked at sort of the outcome as well. I feel like things like that, it's so easy to go by the wayside and for most people to just not even think twice about it. So, so often that you just, yeah, these things just don't come up to have that sort of review process anyway until things sort of get to that step. But um, if someone is looking, if someone is working within government, for example, and looking to introduce sort of a new type of technology, what sort of um, factors do you think, and this is in a really broad sense, obviously, what sort of factors do you think really need to be considered and working out how technology is going to affect people oh it's a lovely question thanks Chloe. um so if i'm if i'm tasked in my position um in some you know small little piece of a large government echelon we need to um save money the budget's just been cut these will be familiar words to lots of people in government <laughs> um but we still need to process whatever it is, a thousand forms a day, a thousand allowances a day, whatever it is, um, go. And, and the very first step that that person, and we hope that they're familiar with their department and, and what they're doing, uh, is, to, is to see what, what is it, what's the output I'm after? Uh, Stephen Covey, who's an American author, um, and he wrote um, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful effective people. Um, one of his habits is begin with the end in mind. So if I'm tasked with something like that, I really do, and it doesn't have to be a utopic outcome, a heaven-like trance of state <laughs> or something, but it needs to be what, what, was, what was 
what was, uh, what was I asked to do? What's the outcome I seek? What are the potential harms? What are the potential bonuses of technology? Because the unintended consequences aren't always negative. They can be amazing. Um, we could, with the correct programming, um, counter, for example, gender bias on job selection. Uh, and, and that's been proven you know, more than once that, that once they de-gendered job applications, women um, got a lot more interviews right up until the point that they could be seen and physically, physically couldn't hide the fact that they were um, this other gender. Um, so, yeah, I think um, understanding what you're asking for, understanding what the cost is. And I'm not just talking about, for example, in RoboDep, there would have been a cost. It would have been paid to X number of contractors, subcontractors, and then the delivery. And it then also comes down to what, what's the person cost? So we already know the budget was cut. So some jobs had to go, but which were the critical jobs that should have stayed? How does any algorithm uh, enforce, for example, ethics in decision-making? And uh, at what cost do we trade off certain things? Um, some should, I feel, be inalienable. And one of the best ways currently in Australia and, and for other states in the oceanic region um, is sadly down to the contract down to the contract for sale and and so in you selling me um you know widget x which is supposed to deliver y there are these terms and conditions which you know if, if you fail at any of these then there will be consequences and and more than just termination for breach but sophisticated uh contracting my experience working in federal government however is that a lot of the contracting is done on a template and um, signed off by people who aren't lawyers and I'm not trying to create jobs for lawyers we either need this more simple language or to um, have have contracts that can at least be looked at by someone with technological skills or the ability to to, to almost um, in the military, we call it wargaming. Wargame through the process of what if this beautiful algorithm, algorithm we're purchasing, this package called RoboDebt, what if this and then that and then that? And I think if that had happened, um, they wouldn't have purchased it as it was. Yeah, and like sort of building off that, do you think that you've mentioned that we need to sort of upskill or educate people generally? sort of within Australia about how to be more conscious of these sort of security issues. Do you think we're having enough people who have that sort of um, technology background? Are they part of this conversation generally? Or do we also need to try and educate people who are being involved in this process as well? Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. Um, so the first is, I don't think every Australian needs to be a mechanic to drive a car. Mm. Now, it's great if you're interested and you're passionate and you want to service your own vehicle. You know, I've pulled out a radiator in under 10 minutes on my very first car, which I had to replace the core quite a few times. But um, that's what you get for a $700 car, right? So, so my point is no Australian should be unsafe online. And as far as I view my contract with the state at large, that's on them. That's on them to keep me safe. That's why you're getting my taxes. Um, and, and they might say, that they, the state might say, oh, but you're choosing to go on the internet. And it's like, it's really not a choice now. 
I can't do banking and I can't receive wages and I can't make payments without having um, an electronic access to my bank. And, um, you know, you as, as Australian government, even with the contract tracing app, assume the smartphone usage of your population. So don't you dare come back at me now and say that education's on me. So my one side of this is that no, it's not up to us to be the engineers of how roads are developed so they're safe in this, in this way. Doesn't mean there won't be always an erratic use that uses cars or roads the wrong way. On the other side of that, I say um, we have improperly addressed the um, means and methods of implementing cybersecurity education and experts and even technicians in Australia. Um, so living in the States for eight years, I saw this amazing investment by the government right down to Obama's day of coding and this, this constant influence operations on just inspiring people to be interested, not mandatory for everyone and by any means, but that th there was this acknowledgement that you grow like planting a seed in the ground and sometimes it takes years and then you get a cybersecurity expert at the end um, who will continue to drop more seeds and, and inspire more people. Uh, where, where's that program in primary school? So I left 2016, we lived in Washington DC and um, it, was the, it was every year of primary school. And I'm not saying that the NSA felt that they were growing people all the way through. It wasn't to create a, you know, an army of spies, but it was to create um, a population uh, equipped with enough to understand. So for example, I might pop my boot and go, ooh, that was like a large engine. And the future population who've done some um, basic cyber understanding through primary school, through to what America calls middle school, through to high school, then they choose what they do at college or university. Um, they could also pop the cyber hood of their bonnet and go, oh yeah, you know, um, I, I understand multifactorial authentication was the thing in, in the 2020s. It's going to be something else in the 2030s. But right now, if you have that, it's, it's very, that's a nice, um, easy, free safety belt for most of the things that most people are doing online. Um, next level, maybe, I don't know, um, a reversing camera, if you like, on the vehicle, might be knowing how to silo your Wi-Fi and make sure it's got security features. So there's all these levels, but I actually, I'm, I'm pretty adamant that, um, especially in the absence of regulation and education and even advertising, um, this one's on the government. I don't know who else could possibly be responsible. It certainly isn't up to the free market, as it were, to, to, to raise our awareness. We have an expectation, I think, as consumers that it's safe. I'm amazed how um, both the Human Rights Commission and the ACCC have stepped into this space, um, you know, in all kinds of ways, whether it's Google or, you know, all, all these big things. But I, um, I still hold on to the notion that we are, we have a government that we pay to do things that are good for us. And I'd like to see that happening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we see a few more good things coming out of these learning curves, let's say. Yeah. Now, oh, and, and I'm just speaking of coming out of learning curves. I am going to speak to um, 
you can cut this. <laughs> the government's decision that, oh, wow, we really need STEM. That's what we need. That's what we need. So they're just they're carving, if you like, an entire generation out of university for the arts. Um, and I come back to a kind of what is a human? What is our value? And um, what distinguishes us from any, um, well, piece of um, inanimate technology that just bleats out ones and zeros and um, by definition to me it's being able to see a bird in a different way because I've seen a painting or hear a bird song in a different way because I've heard someone's composition and I, um, I'm really really saddened that that was that was their approach to it. I'm a STEM woman you know did my science degree before I did my law degree I'm completely about stem um but but you, it's asking one hand to exist without the arm and the shoulder that support it it just they don't work in isolation and i know so many people who spend their life coding who do it to music earphones <laughs> all day <laughs> just um you are literally taking away the paper upon which they would have written in the olden days so uh i'm really not supportive of, of that approach but i think the american approach back when i lived there of let's just make it part of everyday life for these kindergartners everyday life oh oh you're you're using the ipad for your post recess activity did you remember to check the wi-fi security oh yeah i did i mean just build it in as as anyone my age and certainly younger, jumping into a car without a seatbelt should feel unusual. Uh, for those future generations, jumping onto their device without having checked those things should feel unusual, should just feel unusual. No, I think that's a great point about the universities as well. I think it's, um, we often think about sort of the STEM subjects and arts being like completely separate sort of worlds, really. So it's interesting for you to bring that up, sort of, is how they interact so thank you for that though um, one, one more on that if i can indulge um of course if it if it's true that we got the concept of the mobile phone from star trek <laughs> yes guess who wrote about star trek it was an arts graduate who was a writer and then you had oh wait performers performing <laughs> the script that was taken from a story so it just it, it blows my mind and I'm sure um, a majority of um, of the geek sister and brotherhood and otherhood um, allhood that, that that they're seen as a separate channel it is all intermingled no differently to um, the left and right sides of my brain unless you wish to lobotomize me and that's I feel what this is attempting and it ain't gonna work yeah, and as a diehard Trekkie myself, I think it sums it up pretty well, especially looking back now, seeing all the similarities between the things they had going on there. So, yeah, I think that has inspired many a scientist, I would like to think. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's yeah. the point. Now, um, for one of the other questions which we have had submitted to us, I don't know if this is a bit of an oxymoron or not, but is it possible in a regulatory sense to be 
proactive about dealing with technology or is it just like the law and everything is just reactive by its nature? The law has tended to be reactive by its nature, but if we trace back certainly our Western system of law to its origins, which is, you know, kings defending their property rights and their powers, um, it, it, had a, it had a purpose and a reason. And I think that where regulation's concerned, what's often missing, given that we live inside a capitalist construct, is for what purpose are we writing law? For what purpose do we expect people to act within it? And um, I, 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 I think that law does have a place in technology and it may become the, the one thing uh, that still allows us a, a sense of humanity um, in the sense that if we have ethics and law as bedfellows and that's the centerpiece and that's what it's it's writing about so imagine this Chloe imagine this <laughs> imagine every algorithm in Australia that was written from 2021 was always being counterwritten by an other by a non-white by a non-male by a non-english as a first language by a Imagine if that was a law and that sort of effect it could have. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for people listening, Chloe just did a brain explosion kind of, um, what, what's that? Act out. Yes. She acted that out. Yeah. Um, so imagine if, so, so I, I don't want anyone to ever underestimate how powerful law is and can be but for law and the ability to push cases through women still wouldn't be voting aboriginal people still wouldn't be voting um, so so law does have a purpose and uh, unfortunately what's happened i feel in my lifetime certainly is the the it cost has run away the cost of access to law has run away for some even even case law um I work in you know, a, a very small niche field of cybersecurity law and I've yet to meet um, the client that has the funds to continue this all, you know, continue their loss or their cyber breach or whatever all the way through to a hearing because the cost is so prohibitive. Um, so no, I, I, I think we definitely have work to do in the litigation field, but in terms of what we draft, uh, why why are we so limited in how we draft? I, I don't even mind if we don't go down to the specifics of you know the, the three laws of robotics, but just although I wouldn't mind. Um, <laughs> but but just what if what if some other laws of robotics and what if Australia does this as a world first? All code will be co-written by at least two authors who are not men and not white. I mean, what about it? Or, or ooh, I don't know, an indigenous person who has access to a whole range of language that we can't touch. Wow, I wonder how differently they might see it. So, yeah, I think, I think there's a huge um, potential for law to be proactive and to um, have it, seize the initiative to make it better, not always be reactive. There are times when it will be reactive, um, but we can kind of say, how's that worked out for us? Yeah, exactly. And, um we often see 
um, as soon as a new technology is made, a regulation comes in. And I think there was a really great example on the morning show about um, streaming or downloading through like BitTorrent sites. And as soon as the regulation came in, a 14 or 15 year old kid got on the morning show and said, well, this is how you get around it. <laughs> so is it possible to effectively like regulate technology generally, or is it just guiding no, I think you know it depends how you go about it and it depends again to the purpose um copyright's one of those things where I've always you know been very respectful because I respect artists and their product um but I understand equally there are people who can't afford um and would still like to access music or art or whatnot um so what's the purpose behind the regulation and if you're just telling a bunch of um people you can't do this and it's not there's no ethical or moral understanding even of it um then yeah of course some smart children or adults are going to spend a bit of time finding a way around it um, a lot of a lot of the things for sale on the dark web are just people who don't really want to do anything with the um open door they've created but but it was a challenge to do it so i i would prefer to think of um engaging bright minds and one of the classic examples of that is where someone puts onto their website if you find a bug let us know we're specifically looking for a bug in this area in this area in this area hey you know we'll, we'll give you a reward for that so um i don't feel like there's this evil menacing community of evil cyber criminals out there Generally, it's a bunch of people trying to make money for one reason or another. And for the ones who are bright enough to do really clever things and create malware and whatever else and sell all that, um, everyone can be made a better offer. Uh, you know, wouldn't you rather come and do this? And that, yeah, there's many stories of that happening um, for, the, for the big agencies in America. And having said that, the big agencies, um, every time they fall away from the ethical and moral base from which they were created trust and traction is lost in the public and that's i think um where australia has slipped down you know with a few of those with the health app um the my health app the the um <laughs> robo debt we've just been talking about it escape my mind and then the COVID tracing app and and it's a slippery slope because you don't get the trust back and it's not just about changing um governments i mean yes people can vote differently but but that we have these expectations so yeah look um will there always be clever people that can find a way around things absolutely and do you really think you can stub it out like a cigarette but no you probably can't so let's be creative and think of a star trek option yeah <laughs> that's always the way to go really isn't it? it's hard to go wrong with that 100%. 100%. Go forth and prosper. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, sort of touching a bit onto your sort of defence side of your expertise, you touched on this sort of breakdown of trust, and we've seen sort of, without going into too many politics, a bit of a breakdown in trust on sort of an international level in recent weeks and months and years. Have you seen that? translate into um sort of the public's approach or perception of cybersecurity. sort of has that influenced the way people are kind of perceiving that sphere 
So do you mean in relation to um, the absence of cybersecurity? Um, kind of more in the terms of, for example, in the news you'll often hear about this country has done been accused of doing these sort right. of attacks. Got it. Got yeah. It, got it. Do you think that yeah. sort of okay. the trust internationally or lack thereof has influenced the perception or a country's approaches to cybersecurity? Oh, that's, yeah, okay, that's a lovely question. Yeah, um, again, um, countries have always um, spied on each other, they've always done influence operations, and they've always used the media. Uh, so those things aren't new, and as for whether they're nice or not, um, well, no, I don't think they are, but apparently it's in our nature to survive and dominate and um, populate. So that seems to be something we've done throughout time immemorial. Um, would be lovely if we could all share the pie and live in peace. Um, and who knows, maybe COVID will have some really positive outcomes. But in terms of um, this constant need or desire in the West to have an enemy in the East or some part of other, um, it's like, do, do humans always have to have a yin and a yang? Do we always have to say, oh, it's Russia, or, oh, it's China, or it's wherever? Um, I think we, if ever a time came when we might want to think about problems being more complex than it's um, A versus B, it's now. Uh, so a lot of the tools that might be used by state actors are created by individuals who aren't in any way employed by any government or even an organisation, uh, terrorist or otherwise. They're just individuals who are very bright, who felt like doing it. Um, and then they may or may not want to sell it. They, they might be happy if they could just be told, that was clever. Do you want to try <laughs> something else? You know, um, there's, I don't think there's as much evil as is made out. And I think, especially in Australia, what we need to be really really mindful of is what's what could happen if legislation that exists to save us from the perils of this other country this other nation state um and the solution offered is we're going to give this legislation we're going to be able to arrest you without warrant we're going to be able to hold you for 60 days we're going to do all these things um that may be fine while the government day is someone you trust and who's accountable but uh, what if a new government get in, gets in that isn't and they've got the same powers under the same legislation? So um, I'm not saying that Australia lives in a little safe bubble, but I think, um, and having look, earned my living 21 years in the Department of Defence inside the you know, Australian Defence Organisation, I, I would love to see a greater investment in education and ability of all Australians then the through education and use of our taxes, then in um, defensive posturing through the purchase of any of our weapons. And, and I'm happy to include cyber operations as part of our weaponry. Yeah, yeah. thanks for that, EJ. That actually leads in really well to one of our other questions which have been submitted. And that is, are there ethical considerations which policymakers should be taking into account when deciding whether or not to pursue the development of cyber security technologies, whether that be offensive or defensive? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there are panels that sit on it. And, and uh, while I was in the Pentagon and on the Law of War Committee, we would sit down and look at the graphics of a new proposed weapon and how far it could penetrate into human flesh and how, how much it exploded and whether it was within the allowable um, conventions and laws. So equally, we should be mindful of what we create in, in a cyber sphere. And let's take just for example, a small piece of um, malware, which is injected and is meant to have a lifespan so that it only infects, say, up to three generations. So it'll affect that user or might even skip the first user, but it goes on to infect the second and third order. And um, all, all military action has unintended consequences. Um, and I think that even with the best programming heart in mind, when you're creating something that's offensive, you've also got to be aware that it can be reused and, and repurposed, which has happened. And, um, that it has to comply all, um, states, uh, that, that are parties to the Geneva conventions and the additional protocols will say they must, you know, satisfy the laws of armed conflict. It must be proportionate. It, it must be, um, it must be necessary. It must not cause unnecessary suffering and, 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 and that it's distinction, right? So, um, the very first hurdle with, uh, any cyber operation is who am I targeting and why? And, and was it correctly attributed? Um, and that's, that's uh, uh, still a thorn in a lot of our sides. It's not that you can't attribute correctly. It's that it, um, it just takes time and resources and it might not occur as quickly as the operation is running itself. Yeah. yeah. And, um, You've touched on the Geneva Convention and um, sort of who other international instruments. Do you think that we currently have sort of within the sort of international framework enough tools or actors to sort of appropriately regulate or put in place structures to sort of mitigate these cyber attacks to the extent that we do for sort of physical attacks? Um, well, you know, unlike a radar where you can sort of generally, I mean, there are some, some missiles, weapons and aircraft that can avoid being detected on a standard radar, but you can sort of say a blip, blip, blip incoming, um, and very much like back to Star Wars. Uh, but, but for a cyber attack, generally, um, the first time it's detected is often after it's, um, done what it wanted to. And uh, even though some cyber operations are years in the making, um, yeah, detection, detection can be a challenge in and of itself. And one of the problems in some cyber operations is that you might gain better intelligence by not doing anything other than being present. Um, and that might come under spying, so therefore it's not seen as an attack. Um, and, and, you know, like, like everything to do with weapons, there's, there's all kinds of ways of, um, using detonating or, or not. Um, I think so long as the people who are creating them have in their, in, in the, in the back of their mind, 
the purpose. Um, and generally, weapons themselves aren't created to hurt and to just be nasty um, for warfare. It's created to bring conflict and hostilities to an end. And so if, if we're not going to go to the atrocities of uh, what happened to Japan at the end of World War II, um, cyber weapons would seek to uh, disable, not destroy. Okay, yeah. that's, that's an interesting perspective on disabling as opposed to destroying. I've not heard that comparison before, so that's good. Um, in that sort of respect, would you say that sort of cyber um, attacks are less likely to cause an escalation of conflicts than sort of traditional sort of um, tech... <laughs> weaponry. Weaponry, that's the word. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, a good cyber attack will actually cause more because if I, if I manage myself well, um, another nation state might believe, so let's say we've got three nation states, A, B, and C, and if I can make A think B is attacking it while I'm doing it all as nation C, and they blow each other up, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think cyber, um, because of its stealthy nature, uh, generally, it it has the potential to do a lot more harm, and we don't need to invent the weapons; they exist. You know, I can I can just um, disable necessary measures inside um, a government system, a power grid, a hospital, a nuclear plant. Um, you know, in Japan, they reacted swiftly after the earthquake. So, so it wasn't a cyber incident, it was an earthquake to say, wow, when, when nuclear plants go bad, it's really, really awful. So we're going to stop having nuclear power. That's the most dramatic thing I've seen in my lifetime regarding nuclear power, really, um, how swiftly they reacted in that instance. But if you consider that an earthquake, um, the potential is equivalent, a, a good cyber attack on a nuclear plant, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see it as a safer option, but I also think the most likely use of cyber weaponry is as an augmenter and an amplifier to kinetic um, conflict. Okay, so because of its sort of stealthy nature, can cyber attacks be prevented or not really? And do you have any examples of when it might have been prevented? Or not. Um, I know. I mean, I actually think that um, courtesy, respect, and kindness is the best prevention. You know, if everyone drove nicely, people wouldn't have road rage. And if every nation state could just be polite and respectful, uh, we wouldn't need to have any kind of conflict. Um, that aside, uh, if we all shared nicely, if we learned that as children, that aside, um, can it be disabled? Can it? Um, Mm, that's a bold claim for someone to make. Um, yes, but it depends. 
Um, what might be missing is the imperative to spend the funds to prevent um, certain things. Um, and particularly if, you, if you're monitoring well on an adversary, um, you'll know that it can be sufficiently attributed. So, so long as you're not like actually causing harm by not preventing, but then you allow it to occur, um, it could, it, yeah, it, it could be that it's to your benefit to allow a cyber operation to continue to conclusion and then go, you see, you see what they did there? Um, whereas, yeah, I guess it's a little bit like the whole superhero thing. No one knows what you did when you saved X from happening. Um, but yes, it's successfully happened all around the world uh, multiple times. Okay, interesting. And um, I guess sort of on that topic, do you think that going forward, are cyber attacks inside of a warfare going to become more prominent when conflicts happen? Will they become more frequent than, for example, kinetic um, attacks? Or is it always going to be a bit of a combination, do you think? I think the magnitude of effect, the magnitude of order of effect is going to dramatically rise um, over the next couple of decades because we're going to integrate more with technology as humans. We're going to be less um, of our origin nomadic and more integrated. And, um, you know, some people already talk about us being part machine because you might have um, you might have a cochlear implant or you might have a pacemaker or whatever. And I think um, what what's happening is the humanization or, of technology or the the technologization of humans means that the effect will be greater. Yeah, the effect will be greater. So it won't necessarily be that cyber operations overtake from kinetic, um, but it'll be uh, it'll start to be um, down to the bottom line, the cost and the outcome. Um, 40 years ago, it wouldn't have mattered if you had a huge magno, electromagnetic impulse that destroyed all GPS in the world. And probably during the pandemic, it wouldn't matter quite as much because there's not so many airplanes in the air at any one time. But we can imagine in the future that if we're all in, connected and, um, in some way or other, whether or not it's from an internal chip, but even just augmenting parts of ourselves that are failing with more technology as we go on the next few decades. Um, even a minor EMP in a suburb will cause fatalities. Yeah. So what I can't anticipate, I can't imagine any conflict or attack in the United Nations Charter version of the word attack um, that won't be augmented with cyber. I, I can't imagine early kinetic activity going okay. forward. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that, EJ. Um, we might have time for one more question. I think so. If you'll yeah. indulge me, Long it's a little bit of a <laughs> it's a little bit of a silly one. But have you seen the? I think it was in the nineteen eighties, the movie War Games. Yes. What are the chances of us seeing a War Games type situation unfold? Is it possible? <laughs> you give me someone that can do that on a, a laptop in front of me and I'll give you the answer. Um, look, it's conceivable. It's conceivable. Um, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And it could have. Um, 
but yes, I think what we perhaps overestimate is the human involvement in technology as we go forward into the sort of next century um, and therefore some of our fallibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'd like to think that the, 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 stable, sorry, the, the stable part of a non-organic um, brain might actually improve the chances of us emerging from the Westphalian system with something better where we share water and we share air. And we, um, who knows? But uh, probably not in my lifetime. Well, something to look forward to and see. And hopefully we won't see anything bad happen out of or yeah. chess games at the very least. Yes. No, I'd rather I'd rather not have that one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and speaking with us today, EJ. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear from you and you've given us a lot of thought-provoking sort of issues and topics to consider, something to distract us from the election which is going on as we speak. So, thank you yes. for your time, EJ. That's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invite. All right. Thank you.